Welcome to another episode of the Solar Podcast. Today, David is talking with Nathan Giovanelli, head of business development at Enerflow, who also has a long history in renewable energy. They talk about the future of solar sales, debate PPAs and leases for panels, and discuss the recent Inflation Reduction Act of 2022, which entails tax code provisions that will be huge for the solar industry. Let's get right into it on the Solar Podcast. Well, Nate, I want to welcome you to this episode of the Solar Podcast. We're thrilled to have you on today. Um, today, my guest is Nate Giovanelli, and he's coming with us most recently. He's working with Enerflow, but he has a long history of working in the renewable space. And given some of the information that's come down, uh, probably uh, those that, that watch this episode or watch uh, this podcast have been following some of the ITC and uh, I guess it, what's 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 the new tax code called? That they're, what are they calling it? The anti-inflation bill? Is that what they're calling the it? Inflation Reduction Act of 2022. The Inflation yep. Reduction Act. So formerly, it's a lot of the same things that would have been in the Build Back Better program or a few other programs that have existed. Uh, we're obviously not going to dive into all of the intricacies of it, but certainly we're going to be talking a lot about that today. But again, thrilled to have you on the podcast today, Nate, and I'd love for our listeners to get a little bit more of a background on you, not just the time that you've had, a uh, short time you've had with Enerflow, the software company, uh, but your previous experience working uh, within the renewable space as well. Uh, so my background is I, I got started in renewables. It's been a, a little over nine years ago now. So I don't know if that puts me quite in like the super old school status. I started my career um, in actually doing consulting. Uh, I was a chemical engineer by trade and always interested in the environmental piece. In fact, I was able to take a few graduate level environmental courses as part of my chemical engineering degree. Did a, a, a report actually on the use for solar thermal back before really solar PV had any traction at all uh, as a college thesis. And um, again, it was something I was always interested in. I wanted to do environmental engineering and my brother actually talked me into chemical. So when I graduated, I consulted for companies like Lidos and had uh, clients for everything from NASA to like Harley Davidson, Mott's Applesauce, Utz Potato Chips was an awesome client, Pfizer. So I did a lot of things in the environmental realm and eventually went and worked and led a team of engineers for water and sewer infrastructure throughout the country. Um, it was a large publicly traded company and it was a great job, but the travel was killer. I had three kids, so it was time to move on. And I had an awesome opportunity to come work for IGS Energy, which is the largest privately held energy company in the country. So they're a retailer of gas and electric. Uh, it's owned by Scott White and the White family. Um, multi-billion dollar company. I think they're the third largest residential supplier in the country. So a lot like an NRG or Constellation. And what I got hired to do actually was combined heat and power as a gas supplier, that made a lot of sense uh, on a lot of levels. And I think there is a real need for that technology for just a super high level. For those that don't know, it's basically a boat engine. It literally is a boat engine in most cases, or a turbine uh, that you would put in somewhere that has a high heat load, like a hospital. And the number one byproduct of making electricity running natural gas through an engine or a turbine is heat. So if you can capture that heat and recycle it at a high level, you can get super high efficiency uh, and lower your overall cost and also have the ability to island if you're again if you're hospital and everyone loses power you could still have power at your facility so we got into that there was four of us that started that group and uh, i think we were 
maybe three, four months in, and we went to PV America at the time up in Boston. And uh, we had our, our little combined heat and power booth, you know, talking about natural gas and everyone else is talking about solar. And they're like, you guys, are you at the right show? You're in the wrong spot. Uh, we quickly realized that there was a huge opportunity, especially for a privately held company to get into solar in a big way. So we started doing that mid-market stuff, less than 500 KW and started quick aggregating assets, buying distressed assets, working with companies like Sun Edison that weren't financing those, doing nonprofits that aren't credit rated. And we would run them through a Moody shadow rating to, to get them so we could actually put them on balance sheet. And if we ever wanted to sell those portfolios, we could. And that, that was a great success. We did that for a long time, taking those projects, getting our foot in the door. And then um, when Sun Edison imploded, we had some opportunities to do some of the first Amazon projects and ended up being the largest uh, client or customer of IGS. So we own over 100 megawatts or did own over 100 megawatts of Amazon projects. I've done projects for Unilever, FedEx. But as we got bigger and bigger, I realized my passion was really more in the residential space. I like the small stuff. I've been trying to figure out LMI personally for a long time. So ended up pivoting and ultimately running all business development for IGS in the residential space where we deployed uh, well over a billion dollars. Um, we had worked with many of the largest turnkey installers. And turnkey, I mean, we, we seem to have more success with those that had their own sales team. So fully integrated, a little bit different than your model, Dave. Um, and, and there's reasons for that that we can get into if you're interested. But we had great success there and we just built portfolios over time, ended up deploying about seven funds. And I think the key to our success was that we didn't have the front end um, that a lot of the other large TPO or third-party owner providers have. When I say TPO, I mean a lease or a power purchase agreement. Um, so a lot of the big publicly traded guys kind of have that box that you have to play in. And, and a lot of the larger mega regional solar installers wanted to use their own proposal. They wanted to use their own design. And we enabled them to do that. But as we grew, we know we knew we needed a front end, but we also knew if we build it, that we weren't going to build the best design tool, that no, you're never going to get consensus from everyone on the best CRM and design tool and scheduling tool. Go down the line, bring in Enterflow. So I met Enterflow um, in March of, of last year and started talking about them to have a really awesome integration for a TPO product where um, uh, these installers could bring any tool they wanted in Enterflow is the platform that sits underneath. So if you think about the average installer has eight to 12 pieces of software they use. Again, I just named a bunch of them. And a lot of times they don't talk to each other. So Enterflow goes very wide at the bottom. Think of it instead of like one giant Lego or one closed ecosystem, like maybe a, a Salesforce, uh, it's made up of a bunch of small Legos and you can customize your own configuration and if you want to change your design tool, you don't have to change your whole process because you can just swap one out for another. So that's what attracted me to, to Enterflow and why I wanted to use it during my time at IGS. And ultimately, after getting to know the two co-founders, Pat and Spencer, whom I know you know, um, I just found that we were very aligned missionally, and that is to lower the cost of solar for everyone on the planet. So I made the very tough decision in December to resign from IGS. I uh, started... Jovenelli LLC. And of that, I lead business development for Enterflow. So that's what, what got me here today. Well, that's a, that's a 
that was a pretty concise nine nine years of your career uh summed up there so that was a nice job so <laughs> we should jump into a few of those components though so igs um truth is is you guys have been or igs had been have been players in the ppa market for a long time have had some really i think fantastic partnerships have deployed a lot of ppas currently uh, igs their strategy was to own all of those um uh, own all of the paper internally correct correct yeah and so your funds were a lot simpler which created some uh, um some pricing advantages as well right so you were your own tax equity you were your own equity capital i mean you could obviously leverage and go out and get debt but uh, the funds were exclusively igs funds correct or were you guys raising tax equity as part of those funds as well yeah so actually all seven were a little different um with different tax equity structures different cash equity structures um but all, all of them basically had the same debt so we did get debt against them all um and we there were times where we used our own tax, which is a huge advantage in some ways. Uh, I don't know how technical you want to get on the finance side, but because if you sell the tax to like a Bank of America or U.S. Bank, a big big banks and big tax players out there, uh, you can step up the cost of that system. So if I pay complete three dollars to build the system, but the my independent auditor says that the system's worth 450 because of where it's at and there's a whole bunch of ways to figure that out um and it's different by by utility really uh mostly state but also utility then i can sell the tax to one of these big banks at four dollars and fifty cents and what that enables me to do is then be more competitive and pay you know, a, a installer more. So it's not like we pocketed that extra money. We use that to be able to pay the installer more. I think in the early days, some of our advantages were in how we treated SREX. Um, and we were able to underwrite the whole 15 years of SREX using the tremendous back end of, you know, IGS Ventures, the parent company to backstop those which is obviously a very cash strong uh, company. So that, that gave us a leg up because a lot of people were only underwriting SREX for as long as you could sell them. And typically, you know, in the, the auction to buy power, the utilities are buying in three-year intervals. So they're only buying SREX in three years. So that means if you're, a, you know, some of the large publicly traded companies, they would only assume three years of SREX because that's all they could get debt against. Where well, we could go out and get debt against 15 years. So it's no surprise that New Jersey was by far our strongest state when we started um, with Massachusetts probably as a close second. Eventually, you know, we restructured and we're always redoing these funds to try and maintain a competitive edge. But I, I would say definitively that it's really hard to compete in pricing with both um, just Sunrun and Sonova, just to name them. So we don't have to keep saying large publicly traded companies, but you know, they, they don't have a, a long track record of being profitable. I mean, it's no secret. They each lost over $200 million in 2020. And um, I don't know the exact numbers from, from 2021. So we were trying to, we were profitable from day one and trying to maintain that profitability. Uh, so we competed more on the simplicity. And that's why I think we appealed mostly to the large turnkey installers. Cause when you get into the sales orgs, they don't have to deal with the back end as much. So I think it had less value to them because they want to sell for the highest price to capture the highest spread. And I, there's nothing wrong with that. That makes total sense to me. And that's probably how I would do it if I was running that business. 
but the large installers that had their own sales organization under it saw some additional advantages in terms of higher pull-through rates with IGS because we were faster, simpler, to, easier to transact with. And what I always say is we did the 95% really well. So when they would come and ask us, like, why don't you do trusts or LLCs or ground arrays, which now they do all those things. But at the time they didn't, it's like, because we want to be the best at the majority of the jobs. And if you need to go sell some of those others um, to, to other players and they can have them, we don't want to distract from our mission. Uh, the other thing I think that we ended up doing really well was, and, and I don't know if this has evolved with some of the other players in the space, but we did a soft credit pool, never a hard pool. And it was, we ran it through all three bureaus. So we gave the customer the best chance of passing. And as you know, I mean, especially in the last five years, the default rate for solar, even through COVID was very low. I mean, you can see there's a lot of data out there from different publications, but it's less than half a percent in a lot of the newer portfolios. So uh, I don't think that defaults, um, yeah, I think they're really corrugated, correlated to the quality of the install. And a lot of times, like if someone's not paying you, it's a result of they're angry at the installer or they felt misled in part of the sales process. So we're constantly refining that to get that down. And and this is a topic we can rabbit trail on forever. Um, but I, I think, you know, one of my missions is to continue to bring solar access to everyone and should be uh, it shouldn't matter what your income level is or what your FICO score is, because I don't think that's indicative of whether you're going to pay your electric bill or not. Well, there's some there's some things as part of this uh, new bill that maybe address some of that, actually. So and we should talk about that a little bit, too. But unpacking a few things, I might actually going back to just the structure of a PPA um, or a power purchase agreement or any third party owned product. So sometimes they're called power purchase agreements and they operate by selling a cost per kilowatt hour to an end consumer or to a purchaser of the power. And sometimes they operate as an operator, as an operating lease where the, where you're leasing uh, the use of the equipment ergo, you get the benefits of the production of the system that's, that's on your roof. And they're, Technically, there are there is a difference, but to the end consumer, they essentially perform the same. You're paying a monthly fee that's generally reduced or almost always reduced as a fund requirement relative to what they would pay to the utility company. So the question here is, is and I'll ask you and put you on the spot a little bit, but why why is it that solar, these PPAs and these leases um, have a history of being of having such a big percentage of the market? Um, and, and I'll and I'll precursor that by stating Typically, a homeowner, if you're looking at a 20-year or a 25-year cash flow model, does better by owning it with, a, with either using their own money, um, just paying for the system up front, or using either an unsecured or a secured line of credit. Um, most of those are provided pretty liberally from solar companies at this point. Um, why is it that PPAs and leases have continued to exist in the marketplace? And I'm, I'm not saying that they're bad or they're good. Uh, but they do and have uh, had a huge percentage of the market uh, share for a very long time. Yeah, I think this is, might be the my favorite question I've ever had on a podcast because I always want to debate this point is that I still believe that a PPA is the best product for most customers. And I know we could we could talk we could do four episodes on this. I'll say that's a little bit of a controversial take for most people that would come on the podcast. So. Oh, for sure it is. 
If you look at what the the high for, I'm just going to call it generically TPO again, it's third-party ownership, meaning the homeowner doesn't own the array, whether it's a lease, an operating lease, it's a, a PPA. And there's advantages even more, I think, a PPA over a lease. And we can talk about that too if you want. But at the height, and I think this was like the solar city heydays, it was like, it was 72% in 2014 of solar finance projects were was TPO. And now in 2021, which is the most recent data I have, it's 23%. Um, so why is that? I think there's a few reasons and not all of them are good. Um, so first of all, I, I think what you're doing with a lease is that you have historically low interest rates, right? But also like when IGS got in the market for... TPO, a lot of leases were 15 years. Now they're 25 years. It's really hard to compete with a 25-year loan because the customer can save a lot of money. Um, and the other, I think, advantage of a loan is that you can roll in other products and services. You can put a roof on, right, and, and attach that or insulation or whatever, energy efficiency measures. There's lots of different things you can do. So I do think that loans have advantages. Um, for TPO, generally, because of that capital stack we just talked about, you have to give the customer savings. And it, it goes back to perception of default rates. So you might be able to sell... Um, what we would call a bill swap in the industry. So in other words, I'm going to put solar on your roof and you're not going to, you're going to break even, you're not going to save any money year one, but your, your power that uh, you're paying for the solar is not going to increase. It's going to say it's 0% for 25 years. So that's, you can do that, but generally a PPA. And I would say the, the, you know, what people would say against it is, well, they have a 2.9% escalator, which again is no different than the interest rate of a loan, but, it has a 2.9% escalator. So if you do the math, uh, if you start at a 10 cent rate today and pick it, just it could be all over the place depending on your market. But if you're at a 10 cent PPA today, in 25 years, it's roughly going to double. You're going to be at 20 cents. Um, and to sell that product and to be able to get debt on that product and have funds, you generally have to offer the customer savings. So there's some states just right off the bat just aren't going to work because you can't offer the customer savings. The 0% product is a lower fair market value, which we talked about the implications that has on tax equity. Um, so it is, it's tricky business, right? But the advantages are there's zero out-of-pocket cost. There's zero maintenance. You don't need tax appetite going back to serving anyone with a 650 credit score can get it. I think it should be lower, but that's what it is right now for, for most of the major TPO providers. Um, I think the biggest one that people overlook, and I don't think they even consider, is that it's transferable. So technically, if you move within five years, I think that could potentially cause you problems with the ITC. So if you think you might move and the average person only lives in their home for seven years, PPA often can be a better option. Um, also, strictly with a PPA, not a lease, um, there's no production risk. And the, what I like about the product, just what I like about all partnerships, is that the company that is selling you electricity has a vested interest to make sure that that solar system is operating. So they're going to operate and maintain it for you. And it's really a no worries system. Um, now, worst case, it breaks and you have a TPO provider that's not paying attention, which I don't think that happens very often with who's left in the market. But if it did, you're only paying for the power generated. So your default is you're paying a little bit more for electricity, just like you didn't have solar at all. But you're not 
you're not losing money. You're might, maybe losing a little bit of savings. So for all those reasons, I think that TPO is an under undervalued product in a lot of markets. Um, I'll also say just that, you know, it's artificially capped too, based on how all the companies come up with their cost per watt to the, the sales organization. Um, so you can only sell up to a certain amount because like I said, you have to have 20% savings. So let's say the, the rate to compare for your utilities, 12 cents and just keep the math easy. You get a 10 cent PPA. If that caps out the sales org or installer at $3 a lot, they can't sell higher. Now for a loan, you can sell as high as you want. And generally you're just trying to beat the utility bill. So in some areas you could sell that same system at $4. So I would say that, you know, for customers that go with TPO, they have an artificial cap on what their actual system cost is going to be, even though they're not paying for it, um, which keeps their rate generally low and guarantees them that, that at least year one savings. Yeah. So thinking about, and the reason, and, 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 and by the way, those are all valid points. And I think those are all the reasons that people should consider a third-party owned or a TPO product, either a PPA or a lease. Um, and I, like you, believe that there's a very strong place in the market for a TPO product. Um, and a couple things to think about with it, though. So the first question that I'd asked you was, why have they risen to such prominence, right? So typically, if you were going to add something to your home, a service, um, uh, any construction project, you would want to own it. Um, and that's the general mindset of people. And yet the product has been sold. You, you mentioned at one point, probably 70% uh, market penetration. Maybe it was as high as 80% or higher, actually, depending on the market. Um, now it's probably, you hear different numbers, but let's just say um, half or less than half products are sold current, currently are are the TPO products. Um, and so then the question is, is why do they exist? What is it that makes it, I mean, it's the businesses like SolarCity and now Sunrun, you said Sonova, and then there are other players, obviously IGS Energy. There are other smaller funds that exist as well that people have heard of or haven't heard of. Um, and, and so it's that capital stack. And so just maybe going into it, and the reason that I wanna go into it a little bit in the simplest terms that we can is because so much of what has happened with yesterday's announcement of this new bill is impacted by that. You know, we're in an industry, all industries, we had a, a, a guest on last week that talked about how, uh, you know, basically what they do is, is they're a, he's a venture capitalist, they do impact investing. And he says all industries have risk, and that's true, but this is, a, this is a, an industry that has some particularly um, interesting regulatory risk. If you don't believe me, just take a look at the solar stocks that are all up 30% <laughs> in the last, you know, 24 hours. Right. One person goes out and says, hey, we're going to renew this ITC, this investment tax credit. And all of a sudden, um, Enphase is worth $10 billion more today than they were uh, two days ago. You know, that's the that's the kind of impact that uh, regular regulatory impact that the government has on our industry specifically. Um, but anyway, going back a little bit and talking about the capital stack. So typically in any of these funds, you'll usually have a component, what you call your equity sponsor or your equity partner. And those are the people that are putting up hard money that are saying, I'm going to buy solar assets and I just want a reasonable and responsible return on my money. And then usually there'll be some component of debt. So that's your leverage. So some debt component. And then you'll have uh, a tax credit investor, an investment tax credit. And then you also create this structure entity where you might have someone like a complete solar that's selling these products. And then Sunrun might 
if I were going through Sunrun, for example, Sunrun would pay me something and then Sunrun would turn around and sell that asset again to another fund. And each time they do that, there's a step up in the basis so that they can take a higher tax credit. So essentially, before the system is ever commissioned, the end owner of it is going to be a fund that will be able to take advantage of the tax attributes at a higher basis than what a typical consumer could. And that if, 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 if whomever it is that's listening to this didn't follow that, uh, you are in the majority of company that don't understand it as well. Uh, but the point is, is that there's a fairly complex fund structure that allows businesses to optimize or maximize the amount of tax that or uh, of tax benefit that they can take by doing these PPAs and these leases. Um, and it should be stated as well that because it's a business entity um, throughout the period of time over the last 12 years. So I've been in renewables for 12 years. You've been in for nine and you can go back even further, probably 2007, when Solar City and Sunrun started writing these PPAs and leases, uh, and Sun Edison even before that on the commercial side. Um, the reason that uh, it, it, they, these PPAs and leases really rose to prominence was because there were other tax attributes that don't exist today that were even better. And these were relating to the depreciation of an asset that typically homeowners can't take, although there are lots of CPAs out there uh, right now that are teaching homeowners how they can own the asset in a way that they can actually take the tax attributes outside of just the ITC, the investment tax rate, they can also take depreciation. Now, I don't want to unpack all of that stuff. There's a lot going on there. But the point is, is that there's a complicated fund structure that exists because of some specific tax code. And that might be changing a little bit. So you said you'd taken some notes. I'd love to get your take on some of the recent announcements that had, have come down uh, regarding this this and and what 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 did we call it? It's the I keep wanting to say anti-inflation, but that's not what it is. It's the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022. I believe that's what it's called. Interest and as with every bill that goes through the government, they they pack a bunch of stuff that's probably not related to do it, to anything about inflation. So it's a lot of exactly. the provisions that existed in Build Back Better that are making it there in, into this bill that has a, a a more palatable and friendlier name that's probably going to be able to get through the Senate. Yeah. So just to close that last conversation. So you're right. There's there's a lot of advantages of of a TPO product that homeowners don't even know, but even more importantly, it's just simple, right? You don't have they don't have to understand the tax credit cuz they're not taking it. They don't have to understand what a solar renewable energy credit is, which we don't have to get into. But the, it's just it's very easy. It's no money out of pocket, saving money from day one, and you have no maintenance obligation. So it is some people want to I always liken it to owning a car versus leasing a car. Some people like to own cars and they don't don't like leasing cars. Some people want to lease cars. So it's, do you want to own your solar or do you want to lease it, have somebody else own it for you? And and I think there's always going to be a need for both of those. But um, so the anti or the, I just, the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022, um, I haven't read the whole thing yet because it just came out. Um, I just got a copy of it this morning. But for those that, that want to follow along on page 344, is the provision for the federal investment tax credit. And how I read it is that it extends the federal investment tax credit at 30% starting January 1st for 10 years through 2033. So right now, the tax credit's at 26%. It was scheduled on January 1st to go to 22, and then the following year, effectively zero uh, for residential. But now the this new provision would extend, would raise it back to the 30% 
for 10 years and then phase it out at 26% in 2024 and 22% in 2025. 2034, 2035. Sorry, Jess, 2034 and 20. Thank you. But um, yeah, I think that the interesting thing is, is this good for the industry? And I know everyone's excited about it. Um, I could debate on both sides, honestly. I, I think that I'm, I'm happy it got extended, obviously, but I also think that it, until solar breaks free of anything that would be considered widely as a subsidy, uh, I think there's always going to be this stigma around it. Um, I do like some of the provisions they put in, although I didn't see the direct pay in there and maybe I'm wrong because I didn't read the whole thing yet. So you still need to have a tax appetite. There is, I think, a carve out for storage only, which is nice. Um, so your your solar, your battery doesn't have to be attached to your solar to get the ITC. And that's a whole nother conversation. But, you know, there's a, there is some margin, obviously, in that customer acquisition cost. Um, I listened to your episode recently with Brian Lynch, who I know and really like, and uh, he was talking about, you know, all this in the customer acquisition cost. And I, I think the last number I saw from SIA is that like 64% of the residential solar installs soft costs. And again, that's one of the reasons why I came to Enterflow. We're trying to reduce that soft cost. And there's a lot of ways to do that. Um, but I don't know if going back to 30% forces discipline that I think we definitely need in the solar industry. Yeah, I, 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 I tend to agree with that. So as a general statement, I usually say I don't like it when the government's choosing the winners and losers, you know, and you obviously saw there was a big swing in the stocks as a result of, of this new policy. Um, and you certainly could make the argument, and, and there's a lot of validity to it, that these subsidies sort of prop up bad companies and, and maybe don't force us to be as inventive as we need to be as an industry. Uh, we're competing on a world scale to purchase modules. We talk about supply shortages all the time. Well, right now in Australia, people are buying modules for significant, or not, not buying modules, excuse me, getting um, uh, systems installed for less than two bucks a watt, where as a wholesaler, I can't even compete with that. There's no shot I could compete with that because of how many soft costs we have here in the United States. The local bureaucracies, the local authorities having jurisdiction, our cost per acquisition, all of these things continue to keep the costs artificially, I say artificially high, because we already have precedent where Australia has 30% market penetration and they install for a fraction of what we do it here. And and uh, so, th so there's obviously precedent. So, <clears throat> you know, that, that there's something to be said about that. Um, I will say, generally speaking, that um, I would say that there's a lot of positive things. So um, I do think direct pay, which you referenced, which we should just talk about what that is. Um, I, I think that is actually a component of this, um, although the final wording isn't, I think, all the way out and passed through the Senate. Um, and it also so a few things about it. One, the idea is, is it's trying to lower energy costs for Americans. That's actually one of the thesis statements is we're trying to make energy more affordable for everybody. And our antiquated grid, if we continued on that system forever, we would have ridiculously high energy costs. That's just a fact. Uh, and so local microgrids using solar and other renewables is actually a better way to provide electricity to um, homeowners. And this bill and this plan admit that. Um, people could debate whether that's true, but I actually think that that's actually a math problem that's easily solved. It's not really um, a philosophical argument. It's just math. Um, it's so much less expensive to generate electricity for a homeowner by doing it on your roof than it is to use this macro grid. Um, ask any Californian or any person in Hawaii, 
specifically, but, but across the country. Uh, the second thing it does is it increases the American energy security. So the idea is, is that we become energy independent. That's something that's fairly important. Um, we're trying to decarbonize all sectors. So it does reach into other renewables. So there is a tax advantage and a tax benefit for, for other renewables. But one of the things that this bill is trying to do as well is it's trying to bring manufacturing into the United States. In fact, while it is a 30% tax credit, a lot of that, at least for the TPO products, is going to require, um, and and it's it's really more like a 6% tax credit with a plus, 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 plus component to it. So in order to be able to get the full 30% as a corporation or as a business, how and where you source materials, for example, is going to matter. And there's a lot of other provisions and probably, I, I don't fully understand them yet either because this is late breaking news, but but each of those things are critically important for people that are now putting these TPO products together is understanding how the rec pay works, um, how to take advantage of the full tax credit. Um, you know, so there's lots of components. There's, it, and, and as with every other bill, it's overly complicated and it talks about a lot of other things. But one of the last things that it does address as well that I think is great is the direct pay makes it so that um, solar has been in some ways a luxury of the rich for a long time. The, the PPA and the lease have made it so that people that didn't have, and you called it tax appetite, but essentially, if you don't have a tax, if you don't have taxes that you're offsetting, you can't take advantage of the tax credits associated with solar. So essentially, if you're part of the 50% of Americans that have enough tax write-offs already to offset your tax liability, meaning you don't actually ostensibly pay taxes or federal taxes anyway, you pay sales tax and gas tax and taxes in lots of other ways. But if you're if you're offsetting 100% of your tax liability that your employer is withholding and you're getting a return that offsets 100%, you wouldn't actually be able to benefit from the solar tax. And so this direct pay now would allow homeowners and consumers that put solar panels on their roof to actually get a payment that would be equal to the credit that someone that's offsetting their taxes would receive. So there's Again, I think there's still some debate as to whether that's going to happen. Um, it might be direct pay goes to people like nonprofits and churches and organizations like that. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't, I, I don't think that the final verbiage is all the way set here. I, I think that the, the general layout is in place. There's some consensus around it. Uh, it looks like this is going to make it to the Senate floor um, and probably as early as even August is what I'm hearing. So uh, anyway, that's 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 compiling a bunch of information from a bunch of places sorry go ahead nate i agree yeah it's it's definitely going to change and i i do think there's merit to the direct pay um and i i think this is just just to be clear like i said i could argue both sides of but i think this is a big win for the environment i mean certainly i support that that's why i want to lower the cost of solar for everyone on the planet you know regardless of income level so anything that does that i'm in favor of um and i think that we can continue to to lower the cost of solar through the the low-hanging fruit in my mind is uh, reducing the customer acquisition costs and lowering soft costs. I do agree. And actually, it's funny. I was talking to um, Spencer, who is the co-founder of Enterflow before this. And I was like, hey, I'm about to go on with your buddy, Dave. And is there anything you want me to talk about? He's like, we need more manufacturing in America. It's not what I thought he was going to say. So I figured I'd plug him for that because uh, you just said the exact same thing. I think part of the challenge is, if if I remember from, uh, again, referencing the the episode you had with Brian, who's definitely an expert in supply chain. Uh, I, th I thought he said like a bulk of the lithium still is controlled by China, though. So you could still hit some major 
if that's true, you, you could still hit a major hurdle in getting the materials needed to make the panels, even if there was manufacturing here. So, uh, but I, I don't disagree with your thesis. Yeah, well, so what this bill does is there's some provisions for, and and sometimes when you hear about these, you know, the government only speaks in in billions and trillions now. They don't even speak in terms of millions or thousands, you know? So it, it sounds like funny money numbers, but, you know, there's provisions that the government will actually make money on. So for example, there's going to be loans that they're going to be able to issue for people that want to bring manufacturing. And that could be for HVAC products, that could be for solar modules, that could be lots of different things. So access to capital to prop up a manufacturing facility is actually something that's really important to a business. And again, I'm not saying that the government should be in the the, the lending business, but it's not just a bunch of handouts here. There, there, There's, I think, some sound basis for how some of these things ha- have been put together to enable some some onshore manufacturing. Um, you know, there there are also s- something in the order of I don't know how many billions, but there's a few billion dollars in in actual grants that are going to go to manufacturers as well. Um, people that are retooling, um, specifically on the auto side, I think if you retool your facility to be able to build electric or more renewable type cars. Uh, there are actual grants available for that. And that's actually, again, to try to promote decarbonization um, here, here in the U.S. and really across the world as, as the, biggest, uh, the biggest users uh, of cars per capita certainly is here in the United States. And so, um, yeah, there's, there's lots of provisions in here. Most of them um, are a win for the environment if you believe in decarbonization, which um, I think is our, is our general majority at this point, which is great. Yeah. And, and renewables are, there are, they are winning. Um, it's just fact much to the chagrin of some folks on the other side. But if you just look at, uh, I posted on LinkedIn, this article from, I think it was the energy industry administration or the information administration, the EIA that a hundred percent of power production that came online domestically in the U S in March was from renewables. And if you um, extrapolate that in Q1, even with all these headwinds and tariffs and supply, everything that's already been mentioned on this podcast, solar was up, I believe, 11% in Q1 uh, for generation and installs coming online and batteries were up almost 200%. It was like 174% or something to that effect. So if you look at the total now amount of renewables that are contributing to the grid in the United States, it's I think it's it's 26.4% of the total U.S. generation, while coal is 18.2, nuclear is just over eight, and still predominantly natural gas at around 44%. But that that's shifting, and we're seeing that. We're seeing the cost of solar come down over time. I'm sure, in your in your time, it's dropped a ton. You know, from back from when panels were two dollars a watt just for the panel. I mean, you talk about getting below two dollars a watt to build, right? I mean, uh, you you can get there in, in some markets. I do agree that having a one of the best things you could do is having a streamlined policy for permits um, in super quick permits, it, regardless of the jurisdiction, because as you as you know better than anyone, it it's, can be mind numbing. I mean, you could have hundreds of jurisdictions just in you know two counties, um, so that certainly makes it difficult from an installer standpoint. But I think we're we're continuing to make strides in the right direction, and and hopefully this bill just is is part of that. You know, time will tell, and when we look back, you know, have the benefit of being able to look back in history, then I I think we'll ultimately find out. But. 
Well, I'll say that one of, one of the last things that I do support about this bill is is that where people have been fairly advantaged, and and, and I don't want to say it's been an absolute luxury for the rich because that's certainly not the case. Solar has been accessible to to an increasing you know to more and more demographics. The 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 TPO products make that possible. But if you're a renter, for example, because you can't afford to buy a house, uh, you essentially are beholden to whatever prices you can get from the grid. And your neighbor who owns his house in California literally might be paying a third for the cost of power through his solar than what you're paying for your energy by purchasing through one of the major three utilities there, PG&E, Southern SCE, or SDG&E. And that's unfortunate. And so, and, and, and these ITC, these investment tax credits, the way that they work are fairly restrictive about, and because of the complicated fund structure you were talking about, at, uh, at uh, IGS, how you wanted to be very good at, at what you were very good at. Well, I, I guarantee uh, putting PPAs on rental homes was not one of those things you guys were trying to be really good at, and nobody has. And so there are a lot of these underserved communities that would certainly benefit from less expensive energy. And what I'm hopeful for, and I haven't gotten all the way through the bill, is, is that some of the provisions that are put, being put in place um, are going to directly impact those communities. And, it's, and certainly it's part of the thesis statement of the bill, whether or not in practice it comes to fruition, I think we got to see. And and again, anytime there's a there's a tax subsidy, there's there's someone that's going to figure out how to maximize and optimize it. And 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 hopefully it's worded and written in such a way that these some of these traditionally underserved communities are be able to are going to be able to benefit from renewable energy. Uh, that's that would be something that I'd be thrilled to see. Um, but there is going to be a significant investment through this bill that's made um, either through direct pay or into communities that um, traditionally have been underserved in the renewable space, which is good, which, which I'm, which is, I'm equally passionate about. What's, what's interesting is IGS actually would do a rental home as long as the person on title signed the contract. So we did have people that would have a contract for their main home and for their rental home. I, that's beside the point. That's not the point you're making, but um, I, I totally agree. Uh, and in fact, I tried to develop, you know, um, a hundred low income, low moderate income homes in in Maryland. I got pretty far down the line, and I was going to own them personally uh, because it's something I believe in. And uh, ended up, uh, Sonova ended up getting that deal. They just did a press release on it about a month ago. Uh, but I feel like I, you know, I I structured that and I made it happen, so it makes me feel good at least. Um, and it was a great experience, and something I'm going to continue to to strive to be a part of because I'm just sick of waiting around, you know? And I think if you look at it and I was, I was in Florida and Tallahassee when the bill came up to destroy net metering and just super high level for those listening, net metering is basically like rollover minutes. So you produce a lot of uh, energy. If you have solar in your home, when the sun's at its peak and maybe you're not consuming it all at the entire time, you're not using it all. So the utility will give you credit for that power when you come home in the evening or whenever you use it. So Florida was trying to repeal that, which I don't consider a subsidy. They throw around the word subsidy. In fact, I think there's lots of studies even done by utilities that show that net meter, that solar on the grid actually does have tangible benefits. I'm not talking about like feel good stuff. I mean that it lowers during the peak. Now there is a threshold, right? That once you cross like in California, um, but I also don't want to pretend that you know, if you have solar on the grid in a small, we're at 3% penetration in most places, even lower in some, um, but nationally it's about right. 
it with California really propping that up. But uh, I guess my point is, I think they said in Florida, that was about 10% where it starts affecting the rates of other customers and, and they're nowhere near that. So to introduce a bill to get rid of net metering seemed very premature. And I, and I would not want to deploy solar at the detriment to low-income households. That's why I'm trying to figure that out. I think that's community solar is a great option for renters. In other words, having a solar array out in a farm that you own a share of, it's not distributed, which I would prefer for a whole bunch of reasons, but it, it is becoming an option across the country. Um, and I agree that it could be considered a regressive tax, but we're not there yet. And I think that there's going to be people like you and myself that are going to solve this problem before we get to that level of penetration. At least uh, maybe I'm just super optimistic, but I, I don't think we're going to get to to the level of penetration where low income folks are really seeing uh, energy prices go up more because of solar than because of gas prices. Right. Natural gas um, and, and other things. So. Uh, Luckily, you know, there's a lot of passionate people in this industry. I love being a part of it um, that are working on these problems every day. And every time I see one that I don't think is solved yet, I'm just I'm at the point in my career, in my life where if no one else is going to do it, I'm going to do it. I feel the same. I know we talked about this in the pre-interview. So um, about direct to consumer. I mean, a lot of the soft cost is in uh it, it comes in the form of sales commissions. And I'm not saying that get rid of every sales rep. You're going to need sales reps. I just bought literally the other day, bought uh, pest control from someone coming door to door. He's great. And I had a wasp nest. So I'm like, perfect timing. So there's going to be people that buy that way. But I also know that the next generation of homeowners get anxiety talking to people on the phone. There's studies out there. You can look it up. They they don't want somebody to come to their house. They're used to buying things online. You can buy homes online, cars online. You can buy cars out of giant vending machines. It's a matter of time to get to that next level, to get to the early majority as a country. You know, again, you can look at Hawaii or California, but I'm just talking generally. I think we have to have a mechanism to buy solar online, and and that is going to naturally bring the cost down. Yeah. So part of those soft costs, to your point um, that we talked about earlier, are dealing with the permitting offices and, you know, how well, you know, flow down at the permitting office matters a lot. And the people that you have to employ to go through the rigorous engineering, structural, electrical uh, stamps that are required in certain markets. Um, you know, in some places you can get an over the counter permit for free because the community really believes in embracing solar. And in other places, you, you're going to spend, like in New York City, it costs you around $3,000 to get a permit uh, for solar. So if you just want to put solar panels, you're $3,000 to the city before you can even start in the, in the boroughs in New York. You know, and so those are substantive and material costs that artificially inflate what you should be paying for your electricity. And so those, those costs exist. But outside of that, that's what you're talking about is these customer acquisition, these creation costs is right now. Uh, solar remains a little bit of an enigma to most homeowners and they feel like they need someone to guide them through. And I don't think that that's necessarily going to change completely to your point. Um, but, um, you know, when you have utility costs as high as they are in some markets, when some well-spoken person comes in and helps you put solar on your roof and beats your rates by 10%, um, you know, that's that's great. That's fantastic. But in some instances, that same homeowner maybe could have had a reduction of 20, 30, 40 or even 50 percent um, off of their electricity rates relative to the utility company. And so 
you know, one of the things that Complete Solar works really aggressively at is working with the many different partners we have. We have hundreds of partners, literally, um, trying to make sure that in every market, we're not only pricing to make sure that their businesses can be successful, but we're trying to be socially responsible about how we price to the end consumer as well. And in some instances, that means that we're below really what they could have charged. And that's, that's, that's pretty untenable for most business owners to charge less than they can charge. Um, but as part of our broader goal of trying to make solar accessible to many, we're trying to say, hey, listen, we're in this for the, we're in this for the long game. And yeah, you might make a little bit less on this consumer, but in the whole and in the long run, when you install the hundred neighbors and, that live in and around that person's house, um, you know, and you turn it a little bit more into a volume game like Australia has, and you get some of the cost advantages that you get when you get 30% market penetration, um, the people that are really in it for the long game that are thinking about it, like, I think you're going to be the real winners. Um, and frankly, it's the right thing to do as well. So that's, that's where, you know, solar is in kind of a tricky spot right now. And, and, and people that would argue against the solar tax credit would say, you know, we should be able to survive at 30% reduced costs and m maybe would even have a point, uh, you know, if you were going to compare us to other world markets. So. And I, I don't disagree with you. I, I don't, just to be totally clear, so I'm not um, misrepresented, I, I don't think sales orgs are going to go away. I just think that there Never. is a, a large subset of customers that just won't answer the door. So they'll never get mm -hmm. that shot. I don't think it's even competitive with them because it's a different customer base. Um, and I, I hear that all the time for my, like, you answer the door for this guy? You know, like uh, half of my neighbors wouldn't even come to the door. And, you know, we're older than what the new generation that's coming in, right? You know, like I always joke, my kids, they joke about it, it's true. They use, they you know, have a nine and 11 year old and they can use the iPhone better than I can. I have to call my daughter for tech support. So, I mean, that's just the world that they grew up with that in their hand, right? So they, they get it. And I think that if you look at the things again, like you, most people don't, or not most, but there's a new, uh, error where people aren't even buying, you know, get groceries delivered. You have Amazon, right? Like, why would you ever need to leave your house? I'm not saying that's a good thing. It's not a philosophical debate. I'm just simply stating the obvious that um, I think that there are companies out there that are doing it. Tesla did it. I think it was it was kind of half-hearted, um, but you can sell solar for less than two dollars a watt if it's a cash deal and it's uh, just done strictly online. Yeah. And, and uh, very much so to get on the record, I don't think sales organizations are going away either. In fact, in fact I think they're going to 10X over the next handful of years. I think they're going to be more of them and they're going to totally be bigger. Um, and, and that's because we're at 3% mm -hmm. market penetration. And there are a lot of people that need to be handheld and ushered into this new energy revolution. So, uh, and, and that's why we're thrilled to do what we do. We work with the partners we work with. We just want to make sure when we work with our partners, we're always trying to be as socially responsible as we can. And the truth of the matter is, is that anyone buys solar, if they bought, paid five or six dollars a watt today, um, in all of the markets where well, mo many of the markets we're working in, they're far better off than waiting for some time down the road when they might be able to get it for three or two even. You know? And so now is the right time to go solar. And and most of the people that are out selling it are trying to are trying to do it the right way. Um, we work with some really fantastic sales partners, thousands of sales reps represented across the country um, that are doing it, we believe, absolutely the right way. We're just trying to, you know, we want this to be an everyman product and we want their job to be actually be made more easy by, you know, you take care of 
customers in a really spectacular way, you're going to have more customers. I, I just truly believe that. And as a business, we're trying to make sure that every customer has a fantastic experience. And I think we're partnered with sales organizations that also believe that and are aligned with us as well. So, and, and that's why they're successful and growing. And that's why we're bringing on more and more and more organizations that work within Complete Solar all the time. So we're thrilled about it. Yeah, you're definitely doing it right. And I agree. I mean, I think the, and who knows how accurate these predictions are, but I think they're predicting 13% of homes will have solar by 2030. I mean, if you just look at jobs, jobs are the the job growth in, in solar. And even if you want to throw wind in there is 5X the national average for um, at new additions, right? And I think it's up 160, 170% year over year. And if you just look at some of the mandates, not even state, but just nationally, I think that in order to even come close to them, they're going to have to install three times the amount of solar that's been installed already just in the next, you know, five or 10 years. So um, I, I definitely agree. I mean, solar has a bright future. Um, no pun intended, uh, but I, I think it's going to, I don't even think we're at, we're just at the base of the hockey stick. And that was some of the, why I rattled off some of those percentages earlier. Cause I think solar already has a, as in told terms of total production capacity in the U S is probably greater than what most people think. Um, and with the inclusion of batteries now and the battery technology really coming along and the electrification of everything, you're going to need something to keep those costs down. And, uh, you know, uh, solar is an, an awesome alternative for those that, uh, that it works, right. Depending on if you rent or own or, whatever, you know, you have to be a homeowner, you have to face a certain direction, not always, but um, can't have mom's oak tree in the front yard uh, blocking the system. So there's a few hurdles to get over. Not everyone is qualified, but certainly I think it's more and more mainstream. I mean, I see uh, it's a large percentage of my neighbors have solar. Now I'm in Pennsylvania, um, you know, five years ago, that would have been unheard of. Um and I, I see it more and more. Our rates are up, I think, 38% just in the last six months. Uh, so I can I expect that trend to continue. And it's not, it's it's getting more mainstream. It's not like, oh, look, that house has solar. I've had solar in my house for years now. I, I have LG panels. Uh, funny. I was like, oh, this is going to be the greatest ever. They are great panels, but they just exited <laughs> the space. Yeah, but they are great panels. But so, yeah, I put LG up and... Um, I've had solar in my house for years and I can't tell you how many of my close friends and family, other than me talking about it, never knew I had solar or somebody comes to my house. They, d they don't even notice it anymore. So I think that, you know, to me, that's anecdotal evidence on some level that it's, it's more mainstream. Yeah, no, it certainly is. I was, uh, so I, I've lived in California for 12 years with my family until just recently where we moved here to Salt Lake and and there are two different mindsets in that market compared to this market. Certainly, it was very mainstream in the community. I lived there in California. No one batted their eye about panels. Although, if you were at the kitchen table, people would always talk about how concerned they were with the aesthetic of it, things like that. But once they're on the roof, nobody ever talks about it. And nobody ever, ever, ever hear cons hears complaints from anyone saying, oh, those solar panels or whatever. But uh, yeah. uh, don't look good or or out of place or whatever. It's very, very, very mainstream here in Utah. Uh, first thing I did when I came here to Utah is put solar panels on my house. And, um, you know, I think that there's a general curiosity here. Um, my neighbors asked me about solar quite a lot. And of course I'm happy to talk about it. So that's one of the things that I love about, um, solar is, is most people are curious and they're just looking for someone to help them 
um, answer a handful of questions and then their curiosity usually turns into them doing something about it. Um, that's been my experience, at least here in, in Utah. And it was certainly an experience early days in California as well. Um, yeah. Anyway, I, I love all the things you kind of mentioned, you know, so obviously Nate, or, or excuse me, obviously Brian Lynch on a previous podcast, for those that want to go and look that one up, really fantastic guest. One of the smartest guys you'll talk about, about supply chain and some of the challenges we were actually talking about back then, which we're still going to be talking about, but that was the tariff and the tariff situation. Um, you know, that isn't all the way resolved. And, and we also had previously on the, on the show, just after Governor DeSantis had shut down the bill that was challenging the net energy metering program in Florida, we brought a couple of the Flossia people, um, which is an organization down in Florida that was really strongly helping to advocate against that, that bill, which was going to be very destructive to many jobs and to the energy space generally. Florida is such a fantastic solar market. To think that their, their energy, uh, that, that that market was going to be challenged the way that it was, is just a travesty. And so uh, we're really glad that Governor DeSantis made the decision. He did veto that bill um, and shoot that down. That was, that was a big win for solar across the country, frankly. But, but certainly it was a, a big win for Floridians. Um, the people of Florida were, were huge winners when that happened. I can say that um, very definitively. So, um, Nate, uh, I know that um, it it'd be regretful if we didn't talk a little bit about what you're doing right now. You're now working with Enterflow. Enterflow is a software platform program. You gave a great description of it. And you mentioned that you were pretty aligned with Pat and with Spencer. What, what are some of those philosophies that are guiding you now and why you think Enterflow is helping to solve some of those problems? Or helping you to meet your philosophical ideology. Yeah, I think, like I said, um, our the, our mission, our stated mission, I think our unstated mission, I don't know, but is to lower the cost of solar for every person on the planet. And we think that if there, there's no one size fits all solution for installers, as you know, we talked about just the challenges in permitting, but then imagine having to have all these CRMs that aren't built for solar and, you know, we don't, you can use Enterflow as a CRM, you can use it for a lot of things, but really it's truly the only open platform that I know of. Um, and that's what drew me to it because you can pick and choose what design tool you want or what knock tool or how you get leads or, you know, if you want Salesforce or NetSuite or all these different components that can make it difficult to run a business. Um, we could do a business process analysis for you and streamline that, make it so everything talks to get to each other. Um, you know, if a customer calls in, you're going to know exactly where their job is. In fact, one of the things that I really like about that I don't think a lot of people at Interflow talk about enough is our customer portal. And the reason why I like it, because I've seen firsthand on the financing side, the amount of cancellations that happen because... Again, that maybe the installer can't tell the customer where their job is or the customer just assumes nothing's happened because it sits in permits for a month, full circle, right? Back to permits. And in, in what we do at Enterflow is that the moment that that lead is created, no matter how it's created, however it comes into you, whether it's a door knock, whether it's you know buying lead or phone call, that customer gets a link that's unique to them. They can click on it, can upload their power bill. We're starting to run credit and do... Um, pull their home attributes through title top of funnel. So you don't get through and find out they're not approved for the whole system amount, or you can't do it because it's on a, you know, a rental home is a good example. So we'll know all that up front so that the reps are empowered to make the, the best decisions for that customer. Uh, and our goal is just to really, again, increase pull through and increase efficiency, 
and and back having that customer engage. So as soon as they sign a contract, they get what we call is a pizza tracker. If you've ever ordered a pizza, you know, like we're making your pizza, it's being delivered. Same thing. We match those milestones specifically to that installer so that the customer can see their journey and they know that things are happening. And if, if they have questions, they can just chat right in in their um, Enterflow customer portal. It'll go directly to the rep or the appropriate ops person, depending on the status of their job. And uh, we feel that that level of engagement we've seen through our data, uh, that it increases the pull-through rate. And it, anything you can do to lower that customer acquisition cost, I think is, is a real game changer. Um, so having all your data not siloed in one concise spot, um, this was something that, you know, at, while I was at IGS that my partners talked to me a, a lot about. Like, it'd be great if you had a solar specific this or that on the front end to help us manage these projects uh, so that we can go sell more or go build more. And that's exactly what Enterflow does. And, you know, where we end up five years from now, that's the exciting part, still a relative uh, startup. Although this year we'll have well over $4 billion of signed contracts go through our platform, which I think is a tremendous accomplishment in a very short amount of time. We were about one and a half billion last year. So that's not leads, that's signed contracts. Um, we lose a little bit of visibility into the, the pull through rate of those and which ones get installed, but we are actively working on um, coming up with a really, really uh, slick backend uh, project management system that'll be custom. So we're excited about that in the future. And, and hopefully next time I see you, we can talk about that and uh, all the things that that's doing for the industry as well. Yeah, well, Spencer and Pat, um, I mean, they're, they're both great minds. Um, they work on very different wavelengths for sure. Uh, but uh, I'm glad to consider both of them friends. Um, Pat, I, I, think he's a, I, I think he's got a great business mind and a fantastic development mind. And and Spencer is, uh, you know, he's, 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 he's definitely one of those guys that has big and wonderful and huge ideas. So I, I too was interested or curious, I found it curious that he said we need to bring manufacturing to the United States, but I, but I think that's true. And that's what this bill is at least going to part do. So, uh, we, we love the team over at Interflow. Um, for those uh, that are listening to the podcast that are interested, they can obviously reach out to, um, the team over there and, and get some more information about the product. It, 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 it works for, you know, people that are installers, it works for people that are sales only, it works for many different types of people. And, um, you know, we're, we're, we're happy to, to know the Interflow team, been very impressed with them and um, have done some uh, work collectively between our companies as well. So, um, Nate, genu genuinely appreciate you coming on and talking about some of the crazy things that are happening in the solar space right now, actually happening really on the, in the country, but uh, affecting the solar space and the renewable space. And, and the decarbonization of the United States and, uh, and the decarbonization of the world, really. Um, uh, fantastic background, and, and we'd love to have you come back on again. And I know that you guys are accomplishing great things over at Enterflow, and, uh, but uh, love your hot takes on, on just the things that are happening generally in solar. So thank you so much for coming on. It's been an absolute pleasure to visit with you. Yeah, it's been an honor. Appreciate it. Next time I'm in Utah or California, I'm going to look you up and, and we got to meet up um, or otherwise I'm sure I'll see you in SPI if you're going this year. So I look forward to, to meeting you in person. It's odd that we've never met after all this time. I'm, I'm surprised. It is crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I will be out there for uh, all of the listeners. So I'm going to be spending some time. We're actually going to do a live podcast from, uh, from uh, solar power international. So uh, I think, what are they calling it? What, what do they call it now? Re plus or something now. So they're rebranding oh, yeah. the name of it. Sorry. Oops. 
I, whatever I'll never like, get used to that yeah <laughs> <laughs> thanks for coming on nate so appreciate it thanks for listening to the solar podcast please don't forget to rate review and share us with your colleagues and friends who are passionate about solar renewable energy and the future of the environment until next time